I wasn't born like being completely fine with failure, right? I had to learn that the failures of my life were going to be the arrows that were pointing me in the directions that I needed to go or that I needed to steer, steer clear of. Um, and I wasn't gonna not try something because I was gonna be af afraid of what the outcome was. That's amazing. It's a, it's such an important lesson for young girls and for women to not fear failure, but like I love that you turn it into failure as fuel, right? It's such an amazing uh, reframing of how to think about failure. We are living in a moment when achieving equality for women in the workplace is crucial and when women's leadership is needed now more than ever. That's why today we are celebrating three incredible women who are changing the way we look at women in leadership. Their efforts include debunking the false narratives that are holding women back in the workplace and in the world. Today we're showcasing Carolyn Tastad, Group President, North America, and Deanna Bass, Vice President, Global Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion, both of P&G, one of the world's largest consumer goods companies in the world. And they're joined by soccer legend, Olympic gold medalist, author and activist, Abby Wambach. I'm Kim Azzarelli, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We're bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Now, at P&G, Carolyn Tasted and Deanna Bass have created an impressive gender equality strategy. And it's a strategy which is really breaking new ground on these issues in the private sector. Carolyn and Deanna are also guest hosting Seneca's Conversations on Power and Purpose for a new six-part series called Getting to Equal. For this week's inaugural episode, Carolyn and Deanna are joined in conversation by Abby Wambach. In this excerpt, they discuss why women's leadership is so important and why we need to, as they say, quote, tear up the old definition of what it means to be a leader and see it in a whole new way. Listen and learn why Carolyn Tastad, Deanna Bass, and Abby Wambach are among Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Abby Wambach is a soccer legend, a two-time Olympic gold medalist, a FIFA World Cup champion, and she's the author of two New York Times bestseller books, Forward, a memoir, and the number one bestseller, Wolfpack, How to Come Together, Unleash Our Power, and Change the Game. It's based on her inspiring 2018 commencement speech to Barnard College graduates that went viral. Abby's message to all women, if we keep playing by the old rules, we will never change the game. Abby, I am so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, man. Thank you so much. That was such a nice intro. So glad you're here. Abby, we're so happy to have you here because you always bring so much great perspective and energy to the conversation. So you have captained the women's soccer team to more victories than any other individual. As Deanna said, you're the two-time best-selling author, including this book on leadership, a very sought-after speaker, and a great friend of ours. So let me open it up by asking you how you lead. I would say one of the most important things that I ever saw and witnessed with my own eyes and I think that that's really important, this, this idea of representation, is seeing another woman stepping into her full humanity as a woman in a leadership position. And this happened to me when a coach from Sweden came to coach the United States, our U.S. national team, Pia Sundhaga. She showed up, and the first day she showed up with this guitar, and she starts playing the guitar of our first meeting. And at first I was like, this lady is crazy. 
this lady, what is she doing? And then as the song progressed, we kind of in our seats were inching forward because we had never seen a woman step into her own self like that. And Pia was that way every space she walked into. In every room, she was the exact same. She never changed her personality for anybody. She was the boss. She was the big boss. And it gave us that confidence to do that in our own ways, whether it be on the field or in meeting rooms. And so she gave me the confidence as a person, like not just as an athlete or a leader, but as a person to be who I really was. Uh, And around this time is when (laughs) I really, you know, I was so concerned with endorsements and not being the gay, atypical gay person. I didn't want the whole team to know. I didn't want the world to typecast our women's national team as the gay team. So I kind of kept it to myself. But when Pia showed me this form of leadership, I realized authenticity was one of the most important key elements to having people follow you. I'm talking about getting a group of people from where they are to where they ought to be. And to be able to do that, you have to have people follow you. And the only way people will trust and believe you is if you are truly yourself in every room you walk in. So that is the story. That is, that is kind of the way that I try to lead uh, in my life. And sometimes, you know, (laughs) I am too much of myself, (laughs) my my (laughs) wife would say. Well, I think this notion of authenticity is so important. And I think it's exactly what you said. Authenticity builds trust. And when you have that trust, I think it is easier to lead. So your New York Times bestseller, Wolfpack, is about women and leadership. And you've got this amazing way of describing the rules that you think are important for people to truly lead authentically, as we've talked about. And uh, you know, by the way, for our listeners, Abby's also got a second book coming out this fall, which is Wolfpack Targeting a Younger Audience. So Abby, tell us about Wolfpack and where it all began. Okay. So where it began, uh, a few months after I retired, ESPN called me and they wanted to award me with what they called the SB Icon Award. Now, for the listeners who don't know what the ESPYs are, it's essentially the Oscars for sports. And I found myself on stage standing next to Peyton Manning and Kobe Bryant, may he rest in peace. And I just remember this poignant moment where the lights were on and the camera was on. And I was just feeling like this immense amount of gratitude. Like we women, here we are, we have finally made it. They see us like they see Peyton and they see Kobe. And then the lights turned off and the three of us turned to walk off stage and something totally different happened. Um, What you might've thought would have been the best celebratory night of my life turned into what I kind of call the Jerry Maguire moment where I spent sweating and like pacing in my hotel room trying to figure out why I was so pissed off. And I think what I realized that night is that I spent my whole career fitting in and staying inside the lines and and not pushing the envelope as much as I needed to, as much as maybe the world even thought I was. Because the three of us were walking into very, very different retirements. You know, Kobe and Peyton, they earned a ton of money and their biggest concern in retirement was where they were going to invest their hundreds of millions of dollars. Rightfully so. They rightfully earned those dollars. But my biggest concern was where I was going to do and how I was going to recreate myself in a career on um, being able to pay my mortgage. <laughs> you know, I played for the national team. I won gold medals and World Cup and, and, and players of the world. How can it be that I have literally basically nothing to show for it? Um, and especially by comparison to my male counterparts that we were all getting the same award. 
So I promised myself two things that night. One. Hey, Abby. Yeah. Is it fair for me to say, so everybody's clear, you didn't squander your money away. You didn't get paid. Exactly. <laughs> this, is not the, this is not the broke story where I spent all of my money. Um, this, is the, this is the whole idea that women are paid far less. And I felt like that night, if I realized that this was happening to me, this is happening to every woman in every space, right? I, I fancied myself, but it was a very sobering night. So I promised myself that I would do every, everything that I can for the rest of my life in service uh, of not just the players that are still playing, that I didn't want them to have this experience, but other women in every industry. Um, and I want to fight for the voiceless. I want to fight for the people who don't even know that they, that they are under the spell also. So that's kind of what I've been doing. And, you know, the books, um, they've been kind of one of the things that have just kind of come out of me since retiring. Um, and so, yeah, the books have been like such a, an avenue for me to figure out what it was that I knew about leadership and how I learned some of the methods and, and, and the tactics of leadership, like making failure a fuel um, and demanding the ball. You know, I am so grateful for the time that I spent on the national team because had it not been for that experience, I wouldn't have learned the very lessons of life, of leadership that would allow me access to this conversation with some of the biggest and brightest women in the space of corporations, of the corporate landscape. Um, fighting the the good fight as well. Well, one of the things we're certainly really proud of is to be working with you. Our secret brand has worked with you and women's soccer to really become an advocate for pay equality and equal pay for women in sports. And you have made such a huge impact in that space. And it's so very important. Tell us a little bit more about some of these rules. Make failure your fuel. Old rule. Failure means you're out of the game. New rule. Failure means you're finally in the game. And essentially what this means is when you fail, you need to, in your mind, it's a mindset shift. It's not easy. But when you fail, you need to look at it as an opportunity, not a thing to take your ball and go home. It's the moment that can change your life. You can do it. Failure is your fuel. I'll just tell you this story. It's great because it's an old one. It's the first time that I got invited to play as a youth national team player. Uh, this is like back in 1996. So we got to tour the U.S. women's national team, the full senior team's locker room. So there I was. We're 16 years old. And here we were. We found ourselves at the foot of Mia Hamm's locker. There was this picture that was taped up right next to the door, as I, you would assume every player could see and look at right before they were going to go step on uh, onto the field for training each day. And you might think that this was a picture of them, I don't know, celebrating a goal or their last win, but it wasn't. It was of the Norwegian women's national team, in fact, celebrating obnoxiously, in my opinion, the previous year's win over the United States in the 1995 Women's World Cup, knocking the U.S. out of the World Cup in 1995. And as a 16-year-old, I just was like, what? is this about? And we talked about it for the rest of that week as a team, because a lot of us were stunned and surprised. And then when you kind of break into it and get down to the like basics of it, you know, the fear of failure is also the fear of success when you get straight down to it. And I think that that's one thing that I have grabbed onto, held onto, and continue to enforce in my daily life, even after soccer, you know, and, and, and it's a muscle, right? That you have to to train. I wasn't born being 
completely fine with failure, right? I had to learn that the failures of my life were going to be the arrows that were pointing me in the directions that I needed to go or that I needed to steer steer clear of. And I wasn't going to not try something because I was going to be afraid of what the outcome was. So I don't know. I I think that that's one of my favorite lessons of of the Wolfpack book. And, um, And I think it's one of those lessons that I keep having to relearn every single time that I fail. I have to remind myself, no, this is actually the beginning. This is not the end. That's amazing. It's that is such an important lesson for young girls and for women to not fear failure, but like I love that you turn it into failure as fuel, right? It's such an amazing uh, reframing of how to think about failure. Yeah, I just think it's important, especially women, when you find yourself in, if you're in the corporate world or you find yourself in male dominated spaces, there's this mindset that we have to be perfect. Yeah. In order to get any success, to find any worthiness, right? And I think that this concept really will help you move forward. You know, men are allowed to fail up. Why the heck can't we? Why can't we fail and also grow rather than fail and get demoted or fail and lose all of our confidence and take our balls and go home? Like, we have to be strong enough and courageous enough to come back and continue to fight because it's going to take all of us continuing to come back failure after failure to make sure that we have more representation, not just in corporate worlds, but in governments and in every institution. I think your point that failure becomes the way to learn, right? If you don't learn, if you don't push the boundaries and push yourself, how do you expand your impact? How do you expand your influence? How do you expand your knowledge base? So the notion of learning is so important in that. You have one more rule that I want you to share. You have a lot of rules here, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but we're going to make people go get your book to find the other rules because it's just extraordinary uh, way that you frame leadership. So what's your last one that you want to share with us? Demand the ball. Old rule. Play it safe. Pass the ball. New rule. Believe in yourself. Demand the ball. We women have been conditioned to believe that we need to stay silent, that we need to be quiet. And I'm here to tell you that if you want what you want in your life, whatever it may be, you have to demand it. The call to the wolf pack, believe in yourselves, stand up and say, give me the effing ball. Give me the effing job. Give me the same pay that the guy next to me gets. Give me the promotion. Give me the microphone. Give me the Oval Office. Give me the respect I deserve and give it to my Wolfpack too. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. I found myself, it was a couple years after the other story at 16, I was about 18 years old. I was at the Olympic training facility and we were there with the U18 women's national, youth national team. And one of my idols, her name is Michelle Akers. She at the time was 35 at the end of her career for the senior team. And she was walking towards our training session. And I was like, why is she walking towards our practice? Well, she sits down next to me and she starts putting her own cleats on. And so now I'm starting to like actually have panic attack. I'm like, 
is she actually <laughs> going to be playing soccer with us today? So she had to elect to come and play with 18 year olds, right? That was, that was her choice. And so for the first like couple of quarters of the game, you know, I noticed Michelle and she's kind of staying back and letting the players kind of do their thing and, and, and motivating them and also like cheering them on and telling them like, great job. Well, the last quarter uh, comes around and it, it was like something totally switched on or off. I'm not sure which. <laughs> and so Michelle ran right back to the goalkeeper, got in her face and goes, give me the effing ball. <laughs> well, Michelle takes the ball and dribb- dribbles it through our team, leaving all of us basically on the floor, literally. And she scores. And it was winner's keepers. So which, that, which means our, her goalkeeper again got the ball. And you can guess what's going to happen. So Michelle runs back to the goalkeeper again. Give me the ball. And she does this time and time and time again until her team wins five to four, which sucked for me. (laughs) Yes. And here's the thing, right? I thought a lot about this story because though I was, you know, I'm a competitor. I'm one of the most fiercest competitors you'll ever meet. Here, this moment was in my life that I, I have. And, and, and maybe not even since then, <laughs> I've never seen somebody step into her power, let alone a woman, right? Step into their power quite like she did that day. And what that did is it gave me the ability to do the same. Like she demanded the ball. She demanded what she knew she needed to help the team, right? The caveat to this is that she delivered, right? You can't go around in the world Think, give me this, give me this, give me that, give me that, without actually following through on what it is that you're trying to become responsible for. And I think what Michelle taught me was that we all have power. We all have something to demand. So that's kind of the story. I think it's a good one. It's a good one. It is a really good one. I, you know, um, Carolyn and I talk a lot about. Um, we talk about changing this narrative that has been in the world for a while, and it got really loud uh, several years ago. Um, and it is this, and what I love about your story and what I love about you is that you're one of the women that's out there correcting the narrative with us, right? And so the narrative is, you know, it basically says that uh, women, women lack confidence, women fear failure, women fear risk-taking. It's this whole lack narrative about women. And what's frustrating about that narrative um, is that we've taken the very essence of what leadership is, courage, confidence, risk-taking, failure, those things that are core to extraordinary leadership, and we've labeled them as lacking in our gender, (laughs) right? Women lack confidence. Women lack, you know, fear failure. And so we are really um, part of part of our desire in bringing people like you in to have this conversation with us is that when you say demand the ball, when you say failure is fuel, it's a way that starts to course correct that narrative that really is one of the things that holds women back, whether it's in the workplace, in the world, in their communities. And the problem with the narrative is that people start to believe it if you hear it enough. Um, People who are making hiring decisions, pay decisions, promotion decisions, they start to hear that narrative and they've heard that narrative and it becomes what they act off of. 
And so um, I, what I love about your story is that it is the opposite of that, that narrative of lack, really. It's, it re- starts to reframe the narrative of lack. Uh, Carolyn, you'd like talk a lot about um, the Hewlett-Packard study, which started that, that, which is really kind of the basis of that. Yeah, it was one of the, um, when we looked at it, we, you know, Deanna and I spent a little bit of time going back and saying, where did this come from? You know, this notion of women lack confidence and the, the crazy adoption of that within companies, workplaces, communities, uh, including by women, you know, um, Deanna and I would have conversations with women inside P and G and people would say, well, I, I've got a confidence issue. And I was like, you, you made it through a crazy recruiting and vetting process. You graduated top of your class. Where did that come from? And while we know all of us as individuals can have moments of self-doubt, for it to get labeled and gendered as such was, was something that we wanted to really understand. But uh, HP, did a, HP did the study. This is the other thing that kind of made us crazy when we looked at it, because they looked at job applications of men and women. And what they found is that men applied to the jobs when they had 60% of the qualifications. Women applied when they had 100% of the qualifications. The man says, I got six out of 10. I'll figure out the rest. The woman takes the briefing at face value and says, oh, they asked for these qualifications. I'm going to go for these qualifications. As a result of that case study, we created, this is where the narrative came up. They were like, well, women must struggle with confidence. We could just have well have said, women read instructions. <laughs> but we didn't say that, you know? And so as Deanna said, then the other part that uh, makes me a little bit crazy is no one spent any time on the, that prototypical male behavior. We could have called that overconfident. We could have called that reckless. As I say all the time, I'm still waiting to read that book. I haven't seen it. But we've got hundreds of books on women's confidence. So um, again, we misinterpret. And it's the adoption of that false narrative that gets in the way. And here's the thing, women and men are different, but there is a inherent superpower, right? So that's what these, these, these philosophies and ideas and these rules that I write about in, in, in Wolfpack are there to remember and remind women out there. It's sometimes this conditioning of lack of confidence, of quietness, of um, stay on on the stay on the path. Otherwise, you're going to get eaten by the big bad wolf. Like those are those are systemic and institutional things that are keeping women down. And and what we need to remember is that what is coined feminine in some women, right? Being emotional, um, being uh, pragmatic. Some of these things when it's when it's compared against the ma- the masculine that we oftentimes see in more males, um, it 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 looks like it's it's not as good, right? But there is. I mean, if there is a place, and I know we're going to keep talking about this, but if, if there is a time in history that feminine leadership is more required, right now is it? I mean, there's just like all of the studies when these institutions have been built, they've been built by men and they've been built for men. So of course we're standardizing ourselves against men and we're not them. It makes perfect sense why it feels weird in an uncomfortable world. But like, my goodness, thank goodness for Sheryl Sandberg writing the lean in book, though it feels like so archaic thinking about how, how far we've come since that book was released. Her time 
And, and her writing that was important because it gave women permission to be inside of those spaces. You know, I think the notion of lean in gave women permission, but we still see this default to male behavior as the standard that we look for. You know, I saw it uh, in the last year, and there was this remarkable story that uh, a CEO told of hiring a CFO for his company. And he was working so hard to ensure that he had a, an equal slate of candidates, male and, male and female. And he got down to his two final candidates, one man, one woman. He went through the whole interviews. At the very end of the interview for each of them, he said, I want to know if you can cut my corporate tax rate. Now, you're, you're interviewing somebody who's not been with the company, doesn't understand. I mean, it, that's a complex, very complex question, right? Mm-hmm. The man responded immediately and said, yes, I can. The woman paused, hesitated, and said, I don't have enough information to answer that question. I would need to know more. So smart. It is smart. The CEO in telling the story, which I think was very cool, said, my initial instinct, my gut reaction was, I'm hiring the man. He gave me the answer that I wanted. But luckily, this CEO had surrounded himself with counselors and advisors, people on his team who said, hang on a minute, hang on. She gave you the better answer. And so to your point, this notion of systemic fixes, that's what I like about this story. The CEO had put in place a system, people who could balance his perspective. He had men and women in his inner circle. Mm -hmm. And then he listened. And as a result, he hired the woman. He said it was a great decision. But this whole notion that we have to restructure systems and we have to ensure that we're designing systems that work for everyone is the point of this story. As you said earlier, women and men are different. Thank goodness, right? Yes. It makes the world a wonderful <laughs> place for all of us. And so the notion that we've got all of these unique individuals and unique personalities is what makes this world an amazing place. So we've got to find a way to broaden that in how we build the systems. And we've got to stop focusing on fixing the women. And we've got to fix the systemic bias and systems that are in place. What an inspiring conversation. We can learn so much from Carolyn, Deanna, and Abby about women in leadership. To find out more about Abby's work, go to abbywombach.com. And to hear the full discussion, go to Seneca's Conversations on Power and Purpose. Here are three takeaways from their conversation that can help us all get to equal. First, as Carolyn and Deanna remind us, we need to stop trying to fix the women and instead fix the system. That includes debunking the myths and rejecting the false narratives that hold women back in the workplace and in the world. Second, we need to broaden how we think about leadership. The legacy model of leadership that is often described as, quote, male, may not be working for anyone, men or women. And we need to recognize that women's leadership matters and it drives results. Finally, we should all become a student of Abby's Wolfpack and remember the rules, including demand the ball and realizing that failure is fuel. Tune in next Tuesday to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. If you like what you heard on the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. We hope you'll join us for our next episode of 100 Women to Hear, where we can all listen, learn, and get inspired. Have a great day.